This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She said, well, she, she was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Grace and peace, man. Y'all doing all right? All right. Man, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity uh, to make much of Jesus with you tonight. I, I just want to start by saying, man, that the first semester of RUF at Winston-Salem State is in the books. And uh, I can say from that that, that God is truly at work uh, planting a, a new RUF work um, has taught me to really uh, just celebrate the small things that just show 
um, just how God is at work. And one of those favorite times for me that stood out um, was about two and a half months into this process. And I was finally able to be able to get a parking pass. <laughs> and uh, there's a whole lot of praying on you parking that car and you hoping it's going to be there when you get back. <laughs> but um, God is, has been faithful. But I was standing in line with a couple other students who were paying off tickets and um, paying for park passes to, to park on campus as well. And I finally got to the window to speak to the, the lady and uh, she asked me, she said, well, can you explain to me why it is you got to be here every day? What, what is it you do? And I, I went and I began to just to talk about RUF and who I was and, and what it is I do. And you know me, I'm just throwing gospel grenades in this conversation. And uh, she's just looking at me crazy. And uh, finally, I, I, I kind of get to the end of it. And, and she says, uh, you mean to tell me you a black Presbyterian minister <laughs> with some skinny jeans dreadlocks and tattoos. I said, yes, ma'am, that, that's, that's who I am. And she, she said, she said, so, uh, well, I'm, I must be Beyonce. And at that point, I, I, I'm pretty sure she, she thought she had me, um, but then I told her, you should have put a ring on it. And uh, she went to typing fast on that, this man is crazy. And still to this day, every time she sees me, she, Lord, watch that man. <laughs> but let's pray. Lord, we thank you because not only are you the God who made this crazy dream of reaching the students on that campus a reality, but you sent your son Jesus as king. Yet you didn't send him in splendor and majesty. You sent him to be born to a poor teenage mom who laid him in the place animals would feed to rest. And God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, would you feed us tonight that we might be shaped in the likeness of Jesus that we might rest in knowing your gospel is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that we would leave this place with a burning passion to tell somebody about Jesus. And Lord, in this season of Advent, we pray that you would hasten the day of your return. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Luke is a dynamic historian who writes with references uh, to the narratives of eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus, creating what he describes as an orderly account. In Colossians 4.14, the Apostle Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician, uh, which is reflective not only in his academic approach to writing, but also the intentional interest and sickness and the use of medical terminology. Unique to Luke's gospel, though, is this active presence of the Holy Spirit and describing John the Baptist as being filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. 
and the child that Mary bore as a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. As Mary meets John's mother, Elizabeth, she too is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit, prophetically speaking to Mary that she is blessed among all women. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, at his birth, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies, which sets the stage tonight for the Spirit's rest on Simeon here in tonight's text. Simeon, this aging, faithful servant of God, is promised that before death, he would see Christ, and the Spirit leads him to the temple in this time and place for this purpose. Luke writes of Jesus' nativity with a broader historical framework. Yet Jesus comes as the embodiment of good news. As the choir sings the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, proclaiming glory to God in the highest. And as we arrive at tonight's text, though, know that it is the moral and religious excellence of Mary and Joseph on display. Dr. Robert H. Gundry describes this as they showing obedience to the angelic command to name Mary's son Jesus, obedience to the law of Moses and performing the ritual purification of Leviticus 12, righteousness, devoutness, expectancy, endowment with the Holy Spirit, reception of divine revelation, the prophetic gift, lengthy devotion to the temple and constant fasting and prayer. Luke's cosmopolitan almost directly links this connection of salvation of all people and doing so by the mental and physical suffering of the one whom Luke proclaimed. This divine favor for the one he deems the ideal human in verse 40. I was asked though to address Jesus' presentation at the temple as a reflection of his kingdom. And the Gospels wrestle thoroughly with this idea of kingdom. The word kingdom alone is used 126 times in the Gospels. The Gospels clearly want us to see this ideology of kingdom is more than territorial as the God of the universe already owns all things. But we see starting with John the Baptist and his call to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus furthers this teaching of the kingdom, but we recognize that the kingdom he speaks of is messianic and rightly ruled by the only redeemer of God's elect, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That's just a flashback to being on the floor of Presbytery. This is why later when Pilate asked Jesus if he rules a kingdom, he tells him, bro, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, Jesus' answer disputes the lie that he presented opposition to the political authorities. Yet in the season of Advent, we must ask Christian live in the tension 
of the revelation of how the scriptures teach us not only that Jesus has come, but he has yet to come again. We see that Jesus not only will rule and reign in the hearts of men, but he has promised a kingdom to come, a new Jerusalem, a place that we would dwell in the very presence of God. We must know that here Jesus comes and is printed and presented at the temple, inaugurating a new kingdom that he will consummate upon his return. Jesus' reign is not something yet to come, but as Kanye says, Jesus is king now. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning as the highest cosmic authority. As Matthew 28, 18 tells us that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Calvin describes the church as the place where this invisible kingdom of Jesus becomes visible. This is not referring to a tangible building where we gather for worship, but Calvin is talking about the kingdom that is reflective in you and I. This kingdom that we show at work, in our schools, in our families, and even in our checkbooks. Because if Jesus is king, he is king in every sphere of life. John Piper says it like this. He said that God decided the kingdom of God would be most gloriously revealed in a crucified and risen king. So then as we look at verses 21 and 24, we learn much about Mary and Joseph and their commitment to faithfully living according to the scriptures. Eight days circumcision, being named Jesus, is done to fulfill the Levitical requirements that we see in verses 22 through 24. The implications here are high because Jesus' name alone projects its meaning that he is the God who saves. The sacrifice of two turtle doves is not a holy recount of the 12 days of Christmas, but an indication of their poverty. Know that we serve a God who is near to the poor and to the oppressed. As Mary and Joseph go up to the temple, they encounter Simeon, whom the text describes as both righteous and devout. Luke is being sure to let us know that this brother is being true here in both faith and practice but it reveals that he awaited the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. To await the consolation of Israel is to await the freedom of God's people, not merely from governmental rule alone, but they are awaiting freedom from sin's tyranny. It is to wait on the God who has promised to always be with us, to show up and to rescue us. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and it was by the Spirit that he knew that he would not see death until he had seen Christ. In verse 27, it says that he came in the Spirit into the temple. So this is not mere coincidence or happenstance, but being led by the Spirit to encounter God's promise to humanity. 
And here he blesses God, taking the baby Jesus in his arms, proclaiming, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In verse 33, it says that Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said about Jesus. It is the Greek word thumazo. Literally, it is to stand amazed. Look at what it says, though, in verses 34 and 35. It says, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon is speaking to the reality that in Jesus there will be both judgment for sinners, but also in Jesus comes the salvation of God's people. Mary's heart being pierced here is the penetration of the grace and mercy of God in the saving work of the son that she bore. That son is Jesus. Look at how Luke then moves to a completely different encounter. In verses 36 through 38, he says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And I just wanna say to my wife and all those expecting me to deal with the fact that they call Anna a prophetess, you're going to be disappointed. And I wouldn't do that to you. But I will say, uh, make sure you direct any further comp uh, comments to being at Salem Prez WS. <laughs> I, I do want to say that, that Luke's gospel presents women prominently in the life and ministry of Jesus in a way that the other gospels differ. We see Elizabeth and Mary, the mother of John the Baptist and Jesus, and Jesus healing many women and, and using women as examples and Jesus' teaching and engaging others and even women who serve like Anna. And in chapter eight, he goes on to intentionally make sure that we know that women were actively involved. It is women with Jesus at his crucifixion and women who were witnesses of Jesus's empty tomb. In a completely counterculture way, Luke demonstrates a value of women that should leave many of us brothers to deep repentance. These sisters are pieces of the story of God himself weaving his love for us 
in the history of salvation through both genders. Luke connects Anna here into the story of Jesus' childhood. Her dad is Penuel, and she's from the tribe of Asher. The name Anna here is important because it means favor and grace. These are characteristics that she immediately recognizes in Jesus. Women being referred to as prophet, though, is not something that should be foreign to us. We see uh, this done a couple of times. Miriam, Moses' sister, is called a prophetess in Exodus 15, 20. Deborah, the judge, is also referred to as a prophetess in Judges 4, 4. Huldah in 2 Chronicles 34, 22. Isaiah's wife in Isaiah 8 and 3. And Philip's daughters in Acts 21 and 9. And while each of these sisters play roles in the community of believers, it's also then clear that these distinctions were not necessarily church leadership. Yet it is remarkably incredible how faithful Anna was. Anna valued nothing over her communion with God. She did not leave the temple because she never wanted to be outside of the place that God Dwell, prophetically seeking to hear his voice day after day as God reveals himself to those who diligently seek him. In verses 39 through 40, we see that Mary and Joseph sought to live faithfully and that Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and that the favor of God was on him. I got the, the opportunity last week in Denver to sit down with James K.A. Smith just to, to dialogue about the realities of ministering at a historically black college. He, w- he was very interested in, in my thoughts and ideas of that reality as much as, as he was interested in sharing his own. And he said something that shaped me. He said, it's not surprising in our culture for Christianity to be accompanied with doubt And that no matter our cultural perspective, there is an innate question that there has to be a better way to be human. Many of us answer this with functional deism and with claims of orthodoxy, while others live in exclusive humanism as people who can have meaning, meaningful loves without the need of transcendence allowing our disenchantment in life to become more and more dissatisfying, and we are thirsting for hope. Jesus is showing up as a baby at the temple because he is that hope that we thirst for. Jesus comes this Advent, and the scriptures tell us this story. This is the greatest story ever told, the story of God's great glory. It's the story of truth recorded and preserved in the 66 books of the Old and the New Testaments. A story that reaches its climax in the person and work of Jesus. The story of the gospel informs all else with significance and meaning. The story of the gospel begins simply in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. 
God, the creator of all things, speaks the world in which we live into existence. This defines everything. God creates us not out of accidents or a mere product of chance, but we are created of instruments of his glory. As a painter is completely sovereign over his painting or a sculpture in mastering his clay, so is God our creator to us as his people. We belong to him, for in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring, and we cannot exist without him. We are made for his purpose and pleasure. We are made to live for his fame. The definitive question of life's purpose is in displaying to the world God's worth and value as our divine creator. The Westminster Confession of Faith reveals this truth to us, sharing man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are made in his image. In Jesus, God himself reveals to us how to display this glory. Jesus teaches us how to best display this glory in two commands, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. To live in reflection of the glory of God is to live in our lives full of love, a love for God, a love for others. Know then that this supreme love, a, a God-glorifying life. Adam sinned and humanity has fallen in the garden. Sin entered into our reality and death became a part of our story. As sinners, we've committed cosmic treason against God, loving and worshiping creation more than we love the creator. Our idols shape our lives, so we spend them in pursuit of sex and money, success, power, influence, pleasure, and fame, rather desiring to live in communion with God. Our supreme love is everything but God, and when we fail to love God, we also fail in loving others. If Jesus is our standard, our morality is not enough. Without a savior, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Our God and creator is a covenant God, a God who keeps his promises. God in his mercy, even before man was created, set to save him. The entire Old Testament is the outworking of one continuous narrative of God keeping his covenant promise of his chosen people. To Abraham, God promises an entire people by which the world would be blessed. And to David, the promise of a reign of a son that would not end. God's glory is being made known in the promises to his covenant people, and he finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. In Jesus, we find the offspring promised to Abraham and the inauguration of a kingdom without end because Jesus is king. Jesus came to earth and lived sinlessly. He spent 30 years of his life working with his hands before beginning his public ministry, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. 
the ministry of Jesus was an incredible demonstration of both power and compassion through miracles and tender care. Jesus' teachings were dynamic demonstrations of authority, yet it grew contention among the religious and political elite. Jesus' message was hope and the forgiveness of sin and a promise of rest to those burdened with guilt and despair. Jesus gave witness to his own divinity and equality with God the Father. He lived as the epitome of what it is to love others, showing mercy and modeling a love for God the Father. Yet this is precisely why he was put to death. Jesus, being betrayed by his friend Judas, was tried and convicted maliciously. The penalty, death by crucifixion, the punishment for criminals, not the one man who lived sinlessly. The cross was the place of degradation, and death came in excruciating pain. The religious leaders, unable to order the death of Jesus due to constraints, on their power manipulated the political leader Pontius Pilate to do so though he found Jesus without guilt. Jesus' death on the cross led to a brutal death and a burial in a grave. Three days after this death some of Jesus' friends came only to find that grave empty Jesus' body had been stolen, had not been stolen by grave robbers or hidden by his followers to further their belief. Uh, but Jesus' grave was empty because Jesus is alive. Jesus spent the next 40 days comforting and teaching, preparing them for his ascension to heaven, commissioning them to the work of telling others about him and the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. How then is this good news? One of the early leaders of the church was the Apostle Paul. His story is unique because it begins with the details of the pleasure of brutal murder of those who followed Jesus and then radically changed with with this counter with Jesus who would become an international ambassador of him. Jesus satisfies God's wrath, reconciling the severed relationship that began in the Garden of Eden. In Jesus, the one who knew no sin bore sin that we might be in the very righteousness of God. Jesus' sacrifice declared those who chose to reconcile to himself just forgiving sin and restoring us to a right relationship with God. The gospel gives cause to humanity's pursuit of meaning and purpose in life. We exist for his glory, to know Jesus, to love and enjoy Jesus, to make Jesus famous. Jesus rescues us like Simeon and Anna and through sanctification as the work of God's free grace where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are able more and more to die to sin and to live righteousness. The gospel is God entering himself into the story of humanity. Yet it reveals the tension of Advent in knowing the already and the yet to come as Jesus will return for us.
Merry Christmas, y'all be blessed.